looking at Colossians together, and I'm going to read our passage, which is the second half of chapter 1. And as I read it, I'm going to ask you to listen uh, for repeated phrases, ideas, how they work together, uh, repeated ideas. Uh, when you're studying inter- any literature, seriously, right, you need to look for things like contrast and, uh, um, you know, what is the reason why he's saying that, and, and, and repeated phrases, and structural relationships, all these things, and look and see, and like if your mind, if you were circling repeated phrases, like listen along with me, and then that'll be helpful. So, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I turned 30 years old, uh, I was in the middle of a a lot of change and transition. Um, My wife was pregnant with our first son. We had decided to leave our church in in Lexington, Kentucky and move to take a new call in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I was transitioning from a non-denominational church setting into the Presbyterian Church in America, which is our group. I was leaving a church in Lexington that had gone through an extraordinarily difficult time and there was a lot of chaos, a lot of infighting and conflict. The pastor had had a a nervous breakdown. I felt anxious all the time after all of the the fighting and the chaos and the stuff that was going on in the church. We moved on Halloween night to Cincinnati, Ohio. New house, right? New community. All this change, all this anxiety from where we were coming from. And then like a month and a half later, my dad passed away pretty suddenly. And he was 62 years old and I was 30 And it was only a month away from my firstborn son being born. So during that year, all this new stuff, all this kind of anxiety, all in in joy at the same time, like amazing joy that we had this son and a new family that was really beautifully taking care of us and was being very, very kind and patient with us. But for whatever reason, I felt during that entire year drawn to Paul's letter to Colossians. And I remember almost every morning for a year just picking it up and reading it and reading it and reading and reading it. And part of it was because I didn't have the energy to think about, like, what should I read in Scripture? 
And so I literally would just read a psalm and I would, let's go to Colossians again. But that, that letter Paul wrote, and he wrote it from prison, interestingly. Um, and, you know, think about, like, if you were writing a letter from prison, what kind of things would you say? <laughs> like, I, I'm, I know how selfish I am. I would, I would be very concerned for myself, and I would be writing you to say, help me. <laughs> help me get out of prison, please. Like, bring me food. Uh, come talk to me. But Paul, writing from prison, gives us the ch- one of the church's most important passages in the entire Bible about who Jesus Christ is. This first chapter in this passage, our passage this morning, verses 15 through 23, particularly 15 through 20, is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture for what is called our Christology, our, our study of who Christ is. And it's a poem, this passage is, 15 through 20. And we'll see in just a minute how important that is. But his main idea in this passage, and in really this whole letter, he has two main ideas and thoughts. One is this. He's calling Christians, not just in Colossae, but really around that entire region, because they were meant to take this letter that he's writing. He also wrote a letter from Philemon at the same time to a guy named Philemon. And he said, read, read this letter in other churches he wanted them to, to follow the pattern that he's setting for them in discipleship and to listen. And his, one of his main ideas is, I want you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And he tells us, though, to motivate us to do so. He doesn't motivate us the way you think he might, which is like, if you don't walk in a manner of the worthy of the Lord, you're never going to be accepted by God. If you don't work hard enough, you're not going to be forgiven. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord because you are saints, he says in the last passage. You have been transferred, he said, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and the kingdom of his beloved son. Past tense. It's already happened in what God has done through Jesus. So in light of this amazing grace, let's walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. The other idea in this letter and really it's the central idea of all of Paul's letters, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's that he is, he's greater than you can possibly imagine. And so today, above all things, if you fall asleep or kind of forget what I say later, the, the one takeaway I want us to get today is this. Jesus has to get greater and greater for us. And, and the Gospels give us a picture of Jesus, of course. They're narratives, right? They're just the story of Jesus Christ. Uh, on earth and if you've not read them please do uh, especially the gospel of john if you're not familiar with the bible yet start with the gospel of john read matthew mark and luke they're all very similar but read all of them and read the gospel of john and as you get an understanding of jesus you see things beautiful things about jesus that that are so personal but paul means to show us the the jesus of the gospels the same jesus by the way he's way greater than you realize Jesus never stops to say, hey, like, you don't understand how amazing I am. I mean, he, he, he hides his glory in many ways. He'll heal someone and say, like, uh, don't tell anybody I did this, right? Only later, as they're heading towards Jerusalem for the crucifixion, Jesus begins to share with them, the Son of Man must suffer and die, and he owns, I am the Messiah, and, and the disciples don't get it. They don't understand it. But later, Paul, reflecting on it, full of the Holy Spirit, begins to tell us he's greater than you realize. He's so great. Have you ever met anyone that you didn't know how great they are? Like you, 
You had no clue that you were among somebody that was like amazingly powerful or rich or wealthy or smart or whatever. Like uh, today I walked in and I saw Carlos. I'd only met him one of the time. I had no idea he's one of the greatest bakers in the United States. My gosh, he had baked goods for us this morning. He's not only an incredible musician, that guy can bake. If you haven't had something he's baked, do it. Like it's amazing. I have a friend named Brandon. Bob and Christine have the same friend. We, were, we all helped start New Valley together like years ago in 2004, 2003. And when Brandon first moved to the Valley, uh, he drove here from Texas and he pulled into Texas. He only really had like one good friend in Phoenix. So he calls this guy, says, hey, I'm coming into town. Uh, can I have dinner with you tonight? And he goes, actually, I'm, I'm, having friend at my, uh, I'm having dinner with a friend of mine named Jerry's, but you're welcome to join us. You want to come over? He's like, eh, maybe. I'll think about it. He says, yeah, you know what? I'll do it. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go to Jerry's house and hang out with you. So uh, he gets the address for Jerry's house as he's driving into Phoenix. He's not even going to his place he's going to stay for the night or whatever. So he drives up into Jerry's house, okay? He's like, Jerry's rich. Wow. Jerry has a really nice house. So he pulls up, goes inside, and Jerry's just this down-to-earth guy, Welcome, Brandon. His friend's there. They hang out with Jerry for a couple hours and have dinner. After dinner, Jerry says, hey, would you guys like to go to the game tonight? And his buddy goes, yeah, I'd love to. And Brandon, you want to go? And he's like, what game? The Suns game. He goes, do you guys have extra tickets? And Jerry's like, yeah, I got extra tickets. So they get in Jerry's car and they start driving to the game and they drive along and they, they get to the stadium, and when they get there, uh, they don't have to park where everybody else is parking, uh, like in the parking lot. They pull up to the stadium, and a gate opens, and the security opens like, this way, Jerry, and he goes in to the heart of the lot. They open up, and he walks in, and he starts to realize, this guy might own the Suns. This guy is Jerry Colangelo, okay? This, he, some of you, I'm seeing your faces. You don't know who Jerry Colangelo is. He owned the Suns, okay? So Jerry, he, my buddy Brandon had no idea. He's just going to Jerry's house for dinner. Jerry Colangelo owned the Suns at the time, and he got to go to a game with Jerry Colangelo and sit on the court. I don't know if you guys are sports fans, but like this was amazing, okay? <laughs> and what, pa- what Paul's kind of saying is, Jesus, yes, he shows us how close God is and how he's God in the flesh. He's human. And, but you can't forget that he's not just human. He is the sovereign of all. And that's what he's about to tell us. So Jesus, you have to know the king, first of all, are two things, two points today. Know the king and know yourself. Put the king in his rightful place and put yourself in your own rightful place. And life will work really well when you do that. See, the other thing that we learned last week is this. The gospel is meant to take root in our lives and produce fruit. Paul says to them uh, in our passage last week that the gospel is bearing fruit among you as indeed it is throughout the whole world, wherever it's been planted. It's an unstoppable force, really. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. When it comes into a a person or a community or a church, it, it can't help but produce fruit. Never perfectly, Not all at once, not in a moment, certainly, but it will. And if it doesn't, you probably have not actually been planted in the gospel. If if a church is not seeing the fruit of the Spirit, if a person is not, if a community is not, 
the gospel's probably not actually being planted. And he says in our passage last week, like faith, hope, and love, these are the kind of things you should be seeing in your life. Just springing up, faith, hope, love. And the way to do that, the main idea for the gospel to bear fruit in your life is that Jesus has to get bigger and bigger in your life. He just does. And I want to stop right now and just recognize that every one of us is bringing stuff into this room today, and we need Jesus to be greater. If some, some of you may be having like the best season of life you've ever had in your lives. I mean, it's amazing. Things are great. It'll be even better if Jesus becomes greater in your life. But chances are good that you need a sabbatical too, and that you're bringing in here today depression and fear, profound concerns for your children, uh, profound concerns for somebody you love. Maybe your parents are ailing in health, like my mom. Um, maybe depression, anxiety, job loss. I have friends whose spouses have been unfaithful. I have friends whose spouses are leaving them. Maybe you don't even know what you're bringing in. Maybe half the dudes in this room, we don't know. We don't, feelings like what? I know I have them, but I don't know. I have no idea why I'm angry, right? I have no idea why I'm scared. But God knows. The king of the universe knows. He knows you. And he needs to become greater in our hearts and lives today. And I'm, I just want to stop and pray that Christ will be here with us and regardless of what I say, I pray that the Spirit will speak to you and show you what you need out of this passage today to strengthen you. Let's pray. I'm so glad, Lord, that you, even though you are the creator of all things, <clears throat> that you care for the brokenhearted and that you have a special place for the lowly and the meek and the mild and those who have been humbled by life's circumstances and difficulties and trials and so would you be the lifter of our heads this morning would you meet us here in our in our lives whatever we're bringing here this morning and would you make your son become greater for us may we see him in his supremacy and his significance and his beauty and power and may we gain more hope because of that we ask in jesus good name amen so I mentioned that most scholars think verses 15 through 20 is a, is a poem about Jesus. And they don't know if Paul's quoting it or if he wrote it, but regardless, it's absolutely beautiful. And it follows something called a chiastic structure. Now, it's really nerdy, I know, but like, listen, what, in classic literature, what they often would do to make a point or to make poetry was this stuff called chiasm. So it's like this. Uh, there's the main point is C. It's at the middle of the poem. And they, but they begin with one point and they end with that same point. And then in the middle, there's sort of this, this idea, B point. And it could be A, B, C, D, E, F, and then going back, you know. But like in our poem this morning, it's A, B, C, B, A. And the C, the central point is this. It's the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Preeminence. That he is the king. It's that Jesus is king. And 
One of our people in our church made this graphic design for us. It's going to build over time as we go today. Her name is Sandra Bosher, and I'm super thankful for her. But it says in Colossians 1.18, He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. This is in the center of our passage of the poem, the firstborn from the dead. And I believe this is the centerpiece of this poem, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. Preeminence is a word that we don't use very much, but it happens to be like the motto of the school, the college where my three sons attend and my oldest is about to graduate next week. In all things, Christ preeminent. I'll give a shameless plug for Covenant College. It's, it's an amazing school because no matter what you're studying, whether it's economics or business or math or science, that they see, hey, at the center of this, as we do scientific work and study the universe and physics and chemistry and, and all the amazing expanse of this universe, Christ is at the center of it all. He's preeminent over the universe. He's king. And preeminence means this, surpassing all other things. It means supreme, the greatest, the head, the foremost, the chief. Jesus is preeminent. So that's our main idea. That's the central thing. And what Paul is saying, really, is that Christ isn't just another philosophy Christianity is not just another philosophy. It's not just another idea. It's not, a, it's not a help section at Borders or on Amazon. It's, you know, self-help. It's not a, a program like, hey, if you do these 10 things, God will accept you. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. He's at the center of it all. It's about what he's done. It's about who he is. It's about his life, his death, his resurrection, and his preeminence. And this passage uniquely summarizes the supremacy of Jesus and points us to all see that he is at the center of literally, and it's going to build here, over all things. Everything in the universe. Christ is supreme over all things. What is critical is that we get to know Jesus personally and we, we, we come to know who he is through his word, but it has to move out of simply the intellectual, right? And it certainly must begin there that we begin to see like, wow, he is king, he's supreme, he's preeminent. But then to apply our, to our lives and what we understand about the world that he's king, that he's preeminent. So at the center of it all, is that he is king, and then the A points, right, on the other side, you know, depending on which way you go, is this, that when you see Jesus, you see God. That Jesus is God made visible. He says that twice. In Colossians 1.15, he says this, he is the image of the invisible God. That's how he starts out the poem. The firstborn over all creation, the image of the invisible God. And then in verse 19, he says this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was glad to dwell in Jesus. So when you see Jesus, you see God. There's no distinction. John 14 says, anyone who has seen me, Jesus said this, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1 says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His wonderful Word. If we had time, it'd be really cool to like say, like, 
what do you love about Jesus? Even if you're not yet a believer or fully convinced follower of Jesus, like as you read the Gospels, what do you love about Jesus? Because we're all drawn to Jesus, even non-Christians. You may not like Christians, you may not like Christianity, but Jesus, I haven't met too many people like, no, I don't like Jesus, he was, you know. What do you love about him? His power, you see in the Gospels, like just, he, he, the dead don't have to stay dead when Jesus is around. Sickness, it's not a problem for Jesus. His love for sinners. Aren't you thankful that Jesus loves sinners? Because if he doesn't, we're in big trouble. I love that he was at a party invited by a Pharisee, right? So a religious leader who's trying to trick Jesus. But at this party, a prostitute makes her way into the party. Think about her for a minute. This is in Luke 7. How desperate do you have to be as a human being to say, uh, no one in this room will accept me. Everyone knows what I do, who I am. And by the way, in that culture, I doubt very seriously this was like her decision to go do this. Like this is a great career opportunity. Like she's been abused, taken advantage of, trafficked. And she's filled with shame. But there's something about Jesus that she says, he will love me. He'll accept me. I don't know if she knows that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. She, there's something about his teaching. There's something about him that draws him. But he is the one for whom all things were made and who's supreme over all things. He literally is God the Father. And so when we think about God the Father of the Old Testament, we often think wrathful, vengeance, holy. And all, that's all true. Like he's holy. But he's also patient. We see in the Old Testament that he's slow to, to bring judgment, that he is willing to overlook sins. And he is, his heart is Jesus. The Father's heart is Jesus. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. And there's something about Jesus that a prostitute, a trafficked woman, says, He'll, he, he may love me. I'm willing to take that risk. I'm that desperate. And she goes, and you know the story. She worships at his feet, and Jesus welcomes her. He loves her. And he says, her sins are forgiven, for she loves much. How beautiful is that? And what, what Paul is saying, that's God the Father. That's who he is. When you see him, when you see Jesus, you're seeing God. He's God in the flesh. Friend of sinners. And yet Paul is saying, that's absolutely true. He's a friend of sinners, but I want to show you something. He's not just Jerry, the guy I'm having dinner with. He's not just the owner of the sons either. He made everything. I was a liberal arts major, so I didn't really study a lot of science or physics or, you know, um, astrology or anything like that. But, like, in my, it, I've become, like, a late-night YouTube astrologist. Like, okay, so, like, which means I don't really know anything, but my mind is constantly blown, blown by the size of the universe, the expansion of the universe. I've been recently, like, geeking out on videos. My wife is like, what are you watching? I'm like, uh, entanglement theory, <laughs> like, you know, and, like, string theory and spooky action. But, like, the more you study the universe and, and uh, you know, even stuff at an atomic level, 
you're blown away by the magnificence of God and, and the size of the universe and how everything actually is interconnected. And it, it's mind-blowing and it's an expanse, but also that it works because God in Jesus Christ did all this. The universe is really all about him. <laughs> I keep forgetting this thing moves. He must become greater and greater in our life, and it really doesn't make sense to make anyone else greater than him. The reality is, whoever you love the most and who's foremost in your life, you become kind of like that person, right? You should choose your friends wisely and someone you marry even more carefully because your greatest loves in life, you will become like these, these people. And the more that we make Christ preeminent, the greater he gets in our life, the more we become like him, filled with the Spirit of God. So it's super important. Next, B. So like the A's are, when you, see, when you see Jesus, you see God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. And by the way, also, uh, he, he is the fullness of God. God's fullness was glad to dwell in Jesus. And then B, the point is this. He's the firstborn over all creation, and he's the firstborn of the new creation. In verses 115, he says this, image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And if you're not careful, you could create some Mormon theology out of this passage and say, see, there was a time that he didn't exist, and now he was born as a man. That's not what that means. He's co-eternal with the Father and with the Spirit. But what this means is, in that culture, the firstborn son was preeminent. I have three boys. If we had lived back in Bible days, Jacob would inherit everything when I pass or when Becky and I pass. And, and the, the other two didn't get anything. It'd be up to Jacob to give them whatever they might get. The firstborn son was preeminent. And so it's not to say he, there was a time he wasn't and then he was. It was to say instead, no, he, he's preeminent. He's the head. He's the first. And he's the firstborn over all creation, and he's the firstborn over the new creation. The head of the body, the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The new creation is what God is doing to redeem all things. And it starts with his resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn to rise. Now, interestingly, other people had been raised from the dead. Jesus did it. He raised a couple people from the dead, including his friend Lazarus. But what this means is they died again, right? They were more like resuscitated. They were dead, but then they were back to life, but they died again. This is resurrection of the new body, the new earth, the new heavens. Colossians 1.18, yeah, he's preeminent over all things. Firstborn over all creation, back to verse 15, which means this. Then I love how he unpacks in verse 15 that he's the firstborn over all creation, but it, he says this, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Stuff like entanglement theory. And like it says to me, like it really is held all together. In him, all things hold together. All things are created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And then he adds even more detail about that. He says, well, like what? Heaven and earth. Things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, it's all by him, for him, and through him. First, he's the Lord over creation, firstborn over creation. That's actually really, really good news. 
Because so many Christians believe and teach that the only thing that matters is our soul and the spirit and that this material world is nothing. It's all just going to burn. That is not God's heart. He's the firstborn over the creation. He's going to redeem the creation. He loves the creation. We just studied Genesis together. And God creates all things and declares it what? Good. He gets to the creation of humanity and says, very good. This is my Im- these are my image bearers. Very, very good. We know broken and fallen, certainly, and in need of redemption, but good in creation. And he's the firstborn, the steward, the one that holds creation together. God loves creation. God will redeem and restore creation. And so, Jesus is the firstborn also of the new creation. The creation and the new creation. In verse 18, the new creation. Firstborn from the dead. And how does he do it? He reconciles. This is such beautiful language. In Jesus Christ, God is reconciling all things in heaven and earth, and it's through his blood. He's the head of the church. He's the first to rise. And so, friends, ultimately, salvation is not an escape from this world. It is heaven coming down to earth. I hope it doesn't happen today, but if if somebody in this room were to die today, if you're in Christ, your soul would go to be with the Lord immediately. Your body will remain here and experience decay. And your soul will be with the Lord and with those who have gone before, but you have not reached your ultimate salvation yet, believe it or not. The next step, in a sense, after death is, a, a way, in a way, a waiting period. I'm not talking about purgatory, but I'm saying like it's, you go to be with the Lord, but you have not yet experienced the full redemption because that happens when Jesus returns and the dead in Christ rise and your bodies will be reunited with your risen soul and then Christ will bring the new heavens and the new earth and he will reign as king, fully bringing redemption of all things. Jesus is king over creation. Jesus is king over the new creation. And the two things I've wanted to say today is this, like from this passage, and I hope it's making some sense to you, is that we need to know this king. No matter what you're dealing with, no matter when you're dealing with it, no matter what stage of life you're in, we need to know this king more and more and more and let him grow in his supremacy. His supremacy never changes, but let's face it, we don't recognize it sometimes. And we live our lives as orphans as if we're not rightly related to this king, but we are. So know him, but know yourself also and know where you stand. We need to put him in his proper place that he's preeminent and that we're not, but we need to know ourselves. And it says this in verses 21 through 22. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil things, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. To know him as God is to see him as preeminent and to know yourself well is to know that you're not preeminent. Uh, In 1966, uh, I gotta do the math here. Definitely, I'll, I'll, I'll step back. In early 1966, I didn't exist. Wasn't in my mother's womb. 
1967, by March of 1970, I'm there. I exist. I don't exist. I exist. Sedonaism would tell me that I'm God, right? <laughs> what, what this says is I'm not God. I had a time that I was, and there's going to be a time that I will not be. Right? I am right now, but my, I will die. My soul will be with the Lord. My body will cease to exist on planet Earth. But here's the deal. <laughs> I need to remember I am a part of the creation. I am not the creator, that he is the one who's preeminent. And it also tells me some more things about me, and it's not fun to start off with, but it's this, that by nature I'm alienated from God. You who were once alienated hostile to God. The truth is, to some degree, we're still like that. We're not alienated, but we can often be hostile, and we can often give ourselves over to evil. But, but he's saying, you once were alienated, but now you're reconciled. This is what's true of you. You once were alienated, hostile, doing evil, but while that's true, now in the gospel, what we see is that we're reconciled to God. Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself this repeated phrase throughout this passage, all things. He is the Lord over all things. He's reconciled all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, it says, by the blood of his cross, through his body of flesh by his death, through the blood of his cross. Through, this is where the reconciliation comes from by his body of flesh, by his death. This word reconcile obviously implies that there, you need to be reconciled, that there's alienation. You don't have to be reconciled to someone if everything's good. So we need to be reconciled to God, and the means by which we do that, according to Colossians, is through his cross through his body and through his blood but more than ever that's a very offensive idea it's been offensive to a lot of people for a long time but what I found fascinating is it's becoming offensive to people not just outside the church but in the church lately I have a friend who has served in several large youth ministries uh, large churches like and he recently posted on Facebook a seven-point manifesto of his theology. And the first point is this. I am a Christian who loves and affirms the person of Jesus Christ, but I reject the theology that believes he had to die, his death was a form of payment, or his death was necessary for God. And I just want to say, and I, I love this guy, and my heart breaks for his new theology because I think it's a misunderstanding. I understand why somebody might be offended by this, but you're failing to see the beauty of this. That we, we who are hostile, we who have rebelled against God, we who have sinned against God, and God in his sovereignty, we've just heard in this description of how powerful he is and preeminent and supreme that he would decide to send his own son to die the death we deserved. I deserved it. And God says, in spite of the fact you deserve it, I will take the payment. I will pay the price myself. And to be offended by that is, to me, it's heartbreaking. It's failing to see the beauty that God would love us so much. 
And I know why they're saying that. They're, they're, my friend is feeling like offended that God would take our sin that seriously. That he would need to judge sin. But friends, we all judge sin. And we want justice against it. Like, I mean, when it's heinous, we do. I, I spend a lot of time with my neighbors and several of them are agnostic or atheist. And we'll be out hanging around in the, in the winter around a fire and talking and someone will bring up something like child abuse or somebody that's done something really wrong to somebody who's innocent or a victim. And everyone in the group, doesn't matter, Hindu, atheist, agnostic, everyone's like, someone needs to pay for that. They need, somebody, they must pay for that, right? When you hurt somebody, when you really wrong somebody like that, their justice has to be done. If we feel that way, why would it be wrong for God to say justice must be done, but instead of saying they're going to pay for it, he says, I will be the lamb of God. I will provide the lamb uh, caught in the thicket. I will be the lamb caught in the thicket. I will shed my own blood. Please don't be offended by this. This is the most amazing news in the world that the God who is the creator and sustainer of all things gave his life for you and for all things, the reconciliation of all things, not just you, all things. What are you dealing with right now? Depression, anger, anxiety, fear, loss of a loved one, name it. Let Jesus become greater in your heart. This sovereign Lord, this preeminent one over all things, he loves you. He's withheld nothing to reconcile and redeem you. He loves you that much. Let him become greater in your life. Let's pray.